You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, we're privileged to have with us this evening Tanya Lurman. She's the author of Of Two Minds, An Anthropologist Looks at American Psychiatry. Her new book is When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. Thank you for joining us, Tanya. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Tanya, would you start with a reading from the book? Sure. Is Is the mic positioned well? What I have to offer is an account of how you get from here to there, and I'm talking about uh, belief and an experience of God. The, tools of an, the tool of an anthropologist's trade is careful observation, participant observation, a kind of naturalist craft in which one watches what people do and listens to what they say and infers from how they come to see and know their world. I am, more precisely, a psychological anthropologist. I add to my toolkit the experimental method of the psychologist, which I use to explore the constraints on the way people make meaning. At one point, I ran a psychological experiment to test whether my hunch that spiritual practice had an impact on the mind's process was true, and it was. But mostly I watched and listened, and I tried to understand as an outsider how an insider to this evangelical world was able to experience God as real. It didn't have much to do with belief, per se. Skeptics sometimes imagine that becoming a religious believer means acquiring a belief the way you acquire a new set of furniture, a new piece of furniture. You decide you need a table for the living room, so you purchase it and get it delivered, and then you have to rearrange everything. But once it's done, it's done. I didn't find that being or becoming a Christian was very much like that. The propositional commitment that there is a God, the belief itself, is of course important. In some ways, it changes everything, and the furniture of the mind is indeed distinctively rearranged. But for the people I spent time with, learning to know God as real was a slow process, stumbling and gradual, like learning to speak a foreign language in an unfamiliar country with new and different social cues. In fact, what I saw was that learning that coming to a committed belief in God was more like learning to do something than to think something. I would describe what I saw as a theory of attentional learning, that the way you learn to pay attention determines your experience of God. More precisely, I'll argue that people learn specific ways of attending to their minds and their emotions to find evidence of God, and that both what they attend to and how they attend changes their experience of their minds. And that as a result, they begin to experience a real, external, interacting, living presence. In effect, people train the mind in such a way that they experience part of their mind as the presence of God. They learn to reinterpret the familiar experiences of their own minds and bodies as not being their own at all, but God's. They learn to identify some thoughts as God's voice, some images as God's suggestions, some sensations as God's touch or the response to his nearness. They construct God's interactions out of these personal mental events, mapping the abstract concept, God, out of their 
mental awareness into a being they imagine and reimagine in ways shaped by the Bible and encouraged by their church community. They learn to shift the way they scan their worlds, always searching for a mark of God's presence, chastening the unruly mind if it stubbornly insists that there's nothing there. Then they turn around and allow this sense of God, an external being they find internally in their minds, to discipline their thoughts and emotions. They allow the God they learn to experience in their minds to persuade them that an external God looks after them and loves them unconditionally. Thank you, Tanya. That's so powerfully well written. This book uh, is so interesting. And one of the things that's uh, paradoxically almost unbelievable are some of the statistics that you give about modern Americans who believe and how much they believe and what they believe. This is, we often hear how uh, secular a nation that this is. That doesn't seem to be the case. No, and in fact, we're, we, we've never been a secular nation per se. Um, although I, depends what you mean by secular. So roughly 95, can you, uh, just, should I, uh, is this better? Oh, sorry. It's um, roughly nine, 95% of, of Americans say that they believe in God or a higher power. And that figure's been pretty constant since the Gallup polls, been uh, be taking pol- polls since the, uh, the eve of the Second World War. Um, exactly what do people mean by that? About a quarter of the country belongs to what you would call a renewalist Christian church, which means a kind of Christianity in which people expect an interactive relationship with God. They expect to some extent or in some way God to talk back to them. Um, about a quarter of Americans have, say that they've heard a direct revelation from God. Um, it's a lot of people. You know, a one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that this whole upsurge since the 70s and 80s seems so new and we're always thinking that these things have only happened to us in these modern times. But that's, again, not the case, is it? I think what's modern about this moment is the expectation that there are sensible, reasonable people who do not believe in God. And so that is, you know, that's been part of our world progressively since the Enlightenment, but really strikingly in the last hundred years. But that's new, the sense that there's a real social role for people who don't believe in God. Over time, our country has sort of yearned to experience God more directly and intimately. Um, Historians call these periods the Great Awakenings times when Americans have really kind of sought to experience God immediately and directly, and God has knocked them over, and they have felt God's presence. We are arguably, well, historians describe us as being in the fourth of these, of these great awakenings. And of course, over the, to- over the course of Christian history, there have been periods where uh, different communities, different individuals, and different countries have been more or less um, intensely involved with the experience of God. Now, one of the things I think that was so interesting in this book was when you explain that <clears throat> the current uh, revival, came, where that came from, which is just so counterintuitive, but it make, when, once you explain it, it makes perfect sense. Well, I think that the uh, Christian right actually comes out of Santa Cruz. 
That's actually not true, but it's, it's but there. But I I think that the um, impulse for this um, this yearning to know God intimately really comes out of the hippie Christians who were so famously found on California beaches during the 60s. And the story that I tell in this book is is the merging of two streams. So there is as American. As American Christianity became more and more aware of science and an alternative understandings of reality, alternative ways of being Christian for that matter, at the end of the 19th century, mainstream American churches almost all liberalized. So in almost, in many, many cases, Jesus became understood as a near human teacher. Uh, the miracles were seen as kind of little embellishments. Uh, to make the story more compelling. Um, church after church redesigned the understanding of the Gospels to make clear that it didn't, they didn't conflict with science. There was a group of churches that removed themselves from this way of thinking. They became known as the fundamentalists because they committed to the fundamental truths about the Bible, which included the, the, kind of the, the miracles that Jesus performed and that others performed in, in the Gospels. Those, that stream was isolated out of the mainstream. I mean, there, um, you know, the Scopes trial is good, uh, good sort of evidence for the way that they were, they were kind of seen as backwater Appalachian snake handlers. And um, they were a kind of little current along the side of American society, mainstream American society, until the 50s and the 60s. In the 50s, a group of them, actually uh, the group that became Fuller, Fuller University, uh, decided to move more into the mainstream, engage more with mainstream American culture. This was around the time that the hippie revolution was exploding. Those two streams kind of merged. And I see San Francisco as one of the important places that they merged. And they created this new way of worshiping God. The fundamentalists became much more experiential, and the hippies gradually became much more conservative. And over the course of the 60s through the 80s, that Christian stream began to shift more and more to the or politically to the right. And so it's pretty clear now that over the last 10 years, politically, the Christian right has drifted more to the right. It's also true that the evangelical movement has become more fragmented. So there are more and more evangelicals who have broken away from that right-leaning Christian movement. But anyway, that's kind of, I, I, I think the, Christi the um, hippie Christians were much more important in this story than they've been given credit for. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this study. I've always been interested in how things become real for people and how God in particular became becomes real for people. I grew up as a kind of spiritual mutt. My father's father was a Christian scientist. My father became a, a doctor. My mother's father was a Baptist minister. She took us to Uni Unitarian Church. Um, it, so... I've, al I've always known that people had different, very different, um, good, sensible people could have very different orientations towards the nature of the real. While I was doing a, another project on religion and community I, in, in San Diego, I, I um, was at a church and 
a young blonde woman told me that if I really wanted to understand the the way God was experienced, I should go have a cup of coffee with God. And I thought that this was wild. I mean, she clearly experienced God as a person among people. I mean, you know, he was a high and mighty being for her as sort of a source of majesty. But he was also kind of her best friend, her best buddy. And I was so intrigued by that. I wanted to know how you did that. I wanted to know, thinking like an anthropologist, how somebody, you know, I sort of thought of Christianity as a kind of really this propositional belief commitment. You know, you have a view about the world. You say that, you know, you believe in God. I thought it was a kind of idea about stuff rather than an experience of a relationship. And so that, so I just found that uh, riveting. And so um, I was actually moving from uh, California to Chicago at that point. And so I went searching for a church that had that kind of intimate back and forth relationship, um, expected people to know God as a person as well as a force and as a, as an, as a holy majesty. You know, one of the things I think that just really knocked me out about this book was that you really give us a, a scientific, measured view of how people really experience the supernatural. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's just so interesting because I had never twigged to the, you know, perception of evangelical belief as a a supernatural. I, I always kind of would lump it as the political or cultural. Yeah, it's important to appreciate that people experience God in their minds and their bodies, at least in churches like these. And in fact, people often have unusual experiences that they come to attribute to something that's real in the world, but not in an ordinary way, not caused by something material. Um, so I was really intrigued to understand that more deeply. I mean, I should say immediately that I make I, I make no assumptions about whether God is real or not real. I also feel that it's, I don't feel that's the job of my discipline. I don't feel I have the authority as an anthropologist to kind of sign. I don't think that, the, that my profession gives me the tools to make those judgments. I also really don't feel that I have the... Um, that I can that when somebody tells me they experienced God, you know, this Thursday afternoon, that I know the answer to whether they did or not. But what I think I can I think what anthropology gives you is an ability to say, okay, what's going on in people's minds and in their social worlds that leads them to have this kind of experience? What can I say about that? And so I did two things. I mean, I watched people. I listened to people, I went to church, I was member, a member of a prayer group, I was a member of a house group, and I saw that, so I saw that them teaching three things. I saw them teaching people to think about their mind in a different way, to think about their mind as if God could show up and talk to you in your mind. You could have thoughts in your mind that were really God's voice. I saw that people were encouraged to pretend that God is present, and again, I'm not claiming that God is let's pretend, but that people were encouraged to use their imagination to experience God as a person among people. And actually that comes straight out of C.S. Lewis and you know, Mere Christianity, arguably the most important theological book about Christianity in the 20th century. He has a chapter which is called Let's Pretend, and he says, let us pretend in order to experience Israel. 
And I also saw that the church encouraged people to step in for God and to help them to get a little glimpse of the um, of unconditional love by being, in effect, invited to experience God's unconditional love by other members of the church. So that's what I saw as, as an anthropologist. I also ran this experiment where I randomized people to, I mean, it's, it's sort of a long story, but to prayer and lectures on the Gospels. And uh, I, I kind of mocked up an imaginative prayer experience in which people had were, um, there was time for people to interact with God. And I made a series of half-hour iPod tracks. And I also had a series of half-hour lectures on the, the Gospels from the teaching company. And I had these on two different kinds of iPods. And I- All pink. All pink. <laughs> had all these pink iPods. And I brought people into my, my office and um, we gave them, they actually never met me in this group. Um, you know, we gave them surveys and we put them in front of a computer to look at the way that they experienced, use mental images. And we talked to them about their experience of God and their experience of pray prayer. I have 13,000 pages of transcript data. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And uh, then as they went out, they picked up a, a brown envelope. And it had either the prayer condition or it had this, these lectures on the Gospels. Or it, and it, for some people, they also had a kind of centering prayer condition. And um, so they picked up. They didn't know what they had. And the rule was half an hour a day, six days a week, four weeks, come back. We repeat the same process. And the folks in the prayer condition were more likely to say that their mental images were sharper. They were more likely to say they'd had a near tangible experience of the presence of God. They were more likely to actually use their, their mental images more and to kind of, they're a little better at sustained attention. They reported more spiritual experience. They also had more kind of unusual sensory experience. I mean, this is not a lot of people, but you know, paying attention to your mind differently, I think, makes your inner experience more vivid, more present to you, more available to you. You're likely to trust it more. And we found that people in the prayer condition did report a few more meaningful, unusual experiences. So they reported that they'd heard God speak audibly or that they'd seen an angel's wing. And that was something I was really intrigued by because when I was spending time in the church, I noticed that people had these experiences. They were not psychotic experiences. They were different in kind from psychotic experiences, but people had these moments in which they heard God speak and they heard this with their ears or they saw something and it wasn't like, you know, they, 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 felt, it was, they felt like they'd saw something outside of their, their head. They saw it with their, with, with their eyes. Um, and these experiences were meaningful and powerful to people. Um, so, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with the vineyard. And you referred to prayer. And what's so interesting is the way you describe prayer as a tool. And you use your kind of yeah. cultural anthropology and, and psychology to dissect this as a, it's like a, a weight training program. Yes. I mean, I think that the prayer is the means through which people do come to know God. And that's certainly not my observation. That's something that pastors will say again and again. Um, it's, 
you know, in this kind of religious community, that is like the clear through line you hear again and again. So what can I say about what the, um, what an anthropologist, a psychological anthropologist would say about why that's true? And again, here I'm going to speak without making judgments about whether God really shows up, whether God really exists. What can I see about the process? What prayer asks you to do is to take what's going on in your mind to be significant. It asks you to experience that as meaningful and in really, as you're praying, as more meaningful from than, than your everyday world. Prayer in the world that I came to study is a, co is a conversation with God. People have daydream-like interactions with God. They talk to God. They expect that God will talk back. They are, um, and what they're doing psychologically, anthropologically, was really what I was talking about at the beginning. They're learning to create a representation of a conversation that draws from their own experience of dialogue and conversations. They're imagining God as the best and kindest and you know most loving person they can imagine. So they're, they're using the church's ideas to help them. They're using the Bible to help them. They're using their, they're drawing on their own experiences of loving good people. They, and then they're, they're really trying to experience themselves as in a back and forth conversation with that God. So what I can see is that your inner world really does become more important. It, and it becomes, you pay more attention to it. It feels as if it sort of overwhelms the ordinary world in some ways. Um, things that might happen in your mind that you might ignore um, you pay attention to. You can read this anthropological story from two perspectives. You can say, okay, now I really have proof that these evangelicals are making it all up and God, just, God is purely imaginary. From an evangelical perspective, you could say, gee, this explains why God may be always speaking, but not everybody can hear because people who pray are learning to pay attention in a more attentive way. This is like uh, people who are bird watchers learning to see yeah. birds better. You, I, I walk yeah. around and I don't, birds are birds, I don't see anything. But if I'm a bird watcher, I can say, oh, that's a red robin, that's a peregrine falcon. That's exactly right. And in fact, in the, in the book, I compare it to the experience of tasting wine. You know, it's, it's um, there's, uh, my husband has introduced me to to the art of tasting wine, and it, it's um, I, and, and I can see that my own skill has improved over over time. And you know, it's it, there is developing expertise is about learning to see patterns in your experience, um, learning to notice things that hang together in different ways, learning to to see things you didn't otherwise pay attention to. What I saw, and of course, God is different than birds and wine because, the, you know, there's no, you can't prove that it was God. You can't, your pastor can give you a lot of help in helping you to discern whether this really was God or not. But um, it's not like there's, somebody else has their eye on the bird. It's, you know, it's a messier process. At the same time, I, what I saw was people who came to the church and they'd never done this before, 
they were often bewildered and just like flummoxed. Like, what, is, what are people talking about? What does it mean to hear back from God? I, God doesn't talk to me. Would you ask him about this for me? Um, and that, you know, and then over time, as they began to listen to what the church was inviting them to do, they began to identify their own thoughts and bodily experiences, which were a little different for every person. Um, and the church would teach them that what I would call sort of the rules of discernment, although they were never kind of, you know, neatly laid out. You know, but it was basically people were invited to look for thoughts or images that popped into their mind. They were thinking about something else and something came into their mind. But it was strong. It was kind of bigger than usual, more meaningful than usual, but different but than what they were thinking about. They were invited to ask, okay, this thought or image that I'm having, is this the kind of thing that God would say, or is this something that's hurtful? And in this churches that I spend time in, God is a loving God. This is a particular vision of God. They were also at, invited to say, okay, is, is, is this, um, did I feel good when I had this experience? Is this, um, does, do I feel as if God has really spoken to me? Because that should be a very comforting experience. And they were also invited to be cautious about it. They were invited to say, you know, I mean, if, if God, if, if what they, inter if God spoke to them and said, calm down, it's going to be okay. Pastor has no problem saying, take that as a, as a word from God. If the voice, if the thought is, move to Los Angeles. That's a kind of word from God you want to be pretty careful about. You want, and the pastor, the church would invite you to pray with other people. They would invite you to pray frequently yourself. You would want to come to a very settled decision about whether that was in fact God's voice. You would want it to be more than that one communication. But what I saw was that over the course of about six months, I think, um, I'm sort of making that up, but it's sort of, you know, oh, mo more than three and less than two years, people reported that they felt comfortable recognizing God's voice the way they recognize their mother's voice on the phone. What does that mean? Most of the time, they're not, you know, they're not hearing God speak in an audible voice. Like, if they're lucky... They've heard God speak once with an audible, uh, with, with their ears, with their ears. Mostly they're they are recognizing thoughts or experiences in their body. Some people would get warm, some people would get goosebumps, some people would have something pass through them. Um, they would look for certain kinds of thoughts. They were s recognizing some pattern that made sense to them that they felt comfortable recognizing the way that you recognize a red-winged blackbird. Now, uh, I was so interested by the different kinds of prayer, cataphatic, yeah. apophatic, and centering prayer. Yeah, so if you are... I would make go out on the, the limb and, and make an anthropological claim that mental acts that we call prayer come in two varieties around the world, no matter what your faith, what, what your faith conviction. There is a technique of emptying your mind, which you think of as Zen meditation. So people have 
people are seeking to disattend. So the big goal of prayer is to disattend to the everyday, to disattend to worrying about what you like, what you're going to buy at the grocery store, and to focus on God. So the whole point of prayer is to wrench your mind away from the ordinary way of using your mind to a different kind of attention. The apophatic style, that's the term in the Christian tradition, or the sort of the Zen meditation style, asks that you kind of focus, relax, you focus, you center your attention on a particular thing or nothing in particular. Really hard to attend to nothing in particular. Zen meditation is really tough. But you sort of disattend to the everyday, and then when your own thoughts come through your mind, you sort of, you know, depending on your style of prayer, you just try not to emotionally respond to them. You know, you, you try to circle them in a little soap bubble and have them float to the surface of the lake or whatever, whatever technique you're using, you're trying to not pay any attention to them. Cataphatic prayer, as it's called in the Christian tradition, or imagination-rich prayer, and you can find this again in many different kinds of faith practice, helps you to disattend to the external world by really paying attention to what you're imagining. So in the in a vineyard church, you're going for a walk with God, and you're really trying to imagine God as Jesus, or imagine yourself with Jesus in Palestine. Um, the most famous example of this style of prayer is the Ignatian spiritual exercises, where you spend like an hour a day in some biblical text. So you're with blind Bartimaeus, you are you know, you're imagining that you are this blind beggar and then you're part of the crowd and you're watching the blind beggar and you're trying to figure out, you're trying to feel the breeze and you're look at Jesus's face and what are the disciples thinking and, you know, how am I feeling and am I cold, am I hot, am I, is there a crying kid in the, the crowd? <laughs> you're, you're trying to kind of throw yourself into that scene as if it is happening right now, present for you. That's a lot easier than Zen meditation, because you can really get caught up in the imagined scene. And it can make the experience of the scriptures and the experience of being with God very vivid for people. And that was the type of prayer that I thought that the vineyard really encouraged you to experience. One of the things I think that makes this book so powerful is your uh, your experience, your writing, how you write about the characters and the people you met, because these are um, what I think at the core of all this is our ability to tell ourselves a story <laughs> within ourselves. And in order for you to help us understand these story, how people tell stories within ourselves, themselves, you tell us stories about those people. So talk mm -hmm. about meeting those people and getting to know them for years and so, some of the people that, you know, are really big characters in the book. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, crafting their character arcs. So I, I like these people, and I think for me one of the surprising things about the church was how, um, how likable people were, how complicated their experiences were, and how subtle they were about thinking about God. And that took me a long time to see because it's, um, I didn't think I was, it wasn't really until I was part of a prayer group that I realized that, um, you know, people in the prayer group clearly believed in God. But they, 
it was really moving to kind of realize that God could be closer or more distant. That sometimes, you know, people really believed God in God in an abstract way. But, you know, it was really hard to take the whole belief thing seriously. So one of my, um, the, the woman who, who ran the prayer group that I, that I, that I was in uh, said at one point, I don't believe it, but I'm sticking to it. That's my definition of faith. And there's something really moving about that because it, you know, it, 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 yeah, it's, it, it just gave, gives you a sense of how rich these God concepts are, how people reach out in different ways and they're more or less salient. And so what I learned from people was what that was like. I mean, so one of the women that I write a lot about, this woman called Elaine, was somebody who started out as a non-charismatic Christian. Really, her parents really quite disapproved of her Christianity. And, um, or they, they disapproved of her experiential Christianity, her, her vineyard-style Christianity. And then I watched her really become like a no-holds-barred, experiential Christian. She just loved this stuff. The Holy Spirit was knocking her over. She was going to a revival church. And so I watched her change, and that was really interesting. The, another woman that I call Sarah um, was very moving for me because she, uh, she sort of taught me how to understand this experience of God and taught me how to um, understand how somebody came to hear God and then she got psychiatrically hospitalized. And that was like, sort of, that was kind of compelling. That process of watching her kind of fall apart. And in ways I thought that the church held her together. In ways I thought that some of the things she learned from the church were not so great for her. Um, she got very involved with demons. And so I have this deep insight about, you know, whether you believe in demons or not. Spending a lot of time with demons is a risky business. It's, uh, <laughs> That's right. It's, uh, and, and so, it, you know, she got very involved with demons. And she saw them hanging from the chandeliers. And she saw them running across her pillow. And um, she had an exorcism at one point, And she was persuaded that the exorcism didn't work. So, you know, it's... Again, whatever you make of demons, to go through an exorcism and then decide that it didn't work, that is like the worst thing of all because then you're stuck with the demons, right? Now you've really persuaded yourself that the demons are real and you still have the demons. It's, uh, and that was, yeah, it was, a, it was a real double whammy and she was, there she was. A couple of weeks later, she was hospitalized. But I think, well, one of the things I think you do really well in this book is to um, make it very clear that these kind of what you call the sensory overrides um, are not the product of schizophrenia because you right. work with schizophrenics. So you understand right. that difference. So talk a little bit about how your work with schizophrenics, you know, in informs this book and it informs your vision of how these people work with their own minds. So when I met people who'd had these... Oh, these funny experiences and came to church. Uh, typically, those experiences, they, they had certain characteristics, and there was a pretty clear pattern. There was another pattern as well, but that was much more rare. When people had a church, when people had funny experiences, um, they were real sensory experiences. They heard with their ears, they saw with their eyes, they felt a touch, and they really they turned to look uh, to see who had touched them. 
Those experiences were rare. They could remember one or two of them, rarely more. Um, they were brief. If they heard words, they heard four or five words, maybe half a sentence. And what they heard was not distressing. It was pretty unnerving. Like, you know, so a lot of these things happen in cars. People, you're driving down the road. Um, <laughs> God speaks up from the back seat and says, I will always be with you. So you know that this is God. You know that you heard it with your ears. You, fe- you, heard, you located it in the back seat. Good evidence, to, you know, the fact that you locate it is good evidence that it's actually an auditory experience. People typically pull to the side of the road and then they cry with joy. So it's, you know, it's disconcerting, it's unnerving, it's weird, you might worry whether you're kind of crazy, but you cry with joy. People with schizophrenia, that is not their experience. When people hear voices and they meet criteria for schizophrenia, what they hear, they hear a lot. So, you know, 60 to 80% of people who meet criteria for that diagnosis hear voices. When they hear voices, they hear, oh, 17 across the, across the span of a day. They can hear voices like a little rain of sound. They can hear the sound of a car and voices will slough off of the car. Um, what those voices say goes on and on and on. So they can hear sentences and paragraphs and conversations. They can hear somebody lecturing to them as they go down the street. They hear conversations between people. What those, conver- what those people say is dreadful. People spit at them, they sneer at them, they tell them to hurt themselves, they tell them they're dirty, they s- they're, they're, they're terrible, terrible things. Um, they're so terrible that you can reasonably ask the question, as some scientists do, does hearing voices d- drive you crazy, rather than are these the symptoms of a, a psychiatric illness? There's a, it's really different. Now, there is a third pattern, and I think this is a real pattern because I've met somebody for whom this holds true. This is what I call the Joan of Arc pattern. This subject, Joan of Arc. Young woman of 19 leads the French into, to, into battle against the English, wins at least one battle, um, hears angelic voices multiple times during the day. The voices are good. She's clearly localizing them because she tells us she, you know, in her trial, she, um, which is not end happily, but in her trial, um, she, she tells, says where the voices spoke from. Um, what the voices say is good. They give her wise advice. They talk to her about, you know, battle strategy. They seem to say all sorts of stuff. So I've met somebody like this. Um, somebody who <laughs> hears voices maybe several times a day. It's a little, a little hard to, for me to be clear, but it was pretty clear that it was an auditory experience. Um, the voices spoke for longer than most people heard. Um, but what the voices said was good. And she meant you know, none of the criteria for schizophrenia. So there's, there are people like this. Um, we don't know how many there are because they don't tend to come into a clinical office for evaluation. I can say that the people who, in the religious setting, who hear, have these unusual experiences, they're more likely to respond to, right, I used to give people scales I gave them a scale about something called absorption, which basically asks whether you like to get caught up in your imagination, whether that's an enjoyable experience for you. So typically, people who report these experiences, these funny experiences, are typically likely to say that they enjoy getting caught up in their imagination. That's another reason why I think it's just 
there's a different psychological pathway. But you could have a real argument about it. Well, what, too, it suggests that uh, th this absorption scale, the Telegram scale, yeah. uh, suggests that people who read, um, yeah. that's that's a highly intent, imagination intensive endeavor and that right. people who are really good readers might have many of the same skills as uh, people who develop prayers. It's a, it seems like it's a similar toolkit. That's right. So basically the skill you're using when you're reading is the same skill you're using when you're praying. So you need to disattend to the everyday world. You've got to focus in, in a world in which you're using your imagination to build the edifice of that world. You are seeing and hearing and smelling and feeling with your mind's eye. So you're using those same tools. Again, you know, what an anthropologist can see is the human side of the relationship with God. I can see the way that, uh, I mean, I think that if God speaks, God speaks through the human mind. And so I can say as an anthropologist, I can say, okay, what can I see of the way that human minds work and how people use their minds? And how is this present in the way that people pray? You know, I, one of the things I just totally love about this book and about your work is that it's, I think, a really uh, clean, smart, entertaining, uh, scientific examination of the supernatural. A and we don't, there's not, the supernatural is just generally dismissed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what you do is, is by virtue of the way you approach it, you allow us to take it seriously in a scientific world. Because, I mean, we all know all the theory of gravity, all the stuff, you know, that stuff is just now culturally inborn, imprinted on us from, from birth. We can't escape mm -hmm. that. And so you give us a means of understanding how people can have these other beliefs uh, science give us use the tools of science to in a sense almost undo science well I mean I really take seriously this idea that science can't determine whether God is real or whether the supernatural is real I mean people do believe a pretty broad range of things about the supernatural and you know and in different people have different stances on how much of what people believe they take seriously but um, yeah, but it's just so clear that people experience what we call, for want of a better word, the supernatural. People um, in the vineyard, people experience God. They engage with God. In um, you know, I'm the kind of I'm the kind of uh, person that you know, and this happens to anthropologists who study this kind of thing. And I bet that's true for Danilin as well. That um, people. Uh, you become the kind of person people buttonhole late at night to then they tell you things they've experienced that they don't tell to many other people and what they've experienced is it's a real experience it's um, what does it say about the world as we know it I, that's a complicated question but do people have do people see things that other people don't see do people see things that are impossible absolutely do people um, actually, you scra scratch most anthropologists and you find stories of the supernatural that they've experienced during field work. Um, uh, it, but people, those, you know, people feel power moving through them. They have unusual experiences where they th see themselves from the outside. And there are patterns to these experiences that, 
now what does that tell you? It tells you that there's at least, you know, the human mind is patterned in its in its perceptual c uh, capacity. Um, but you know, it's important to pay attention to these things. I think uh, this book ends with a chapter called "Bridging the Gap." And, and that's what I think is that this book does really well is to enable um, the skeptic or the, the secular to get a much better understanding, a much more sympathetic, empathetic understanding of what goes on in the minds of people who are experiencing these things and, and to really respect that. And I'd like you to just Thanks. talk about how that happened for you because when you plunged into this study you might have you must have had one set of beliefs and I'm wondering if they changed or what happened to you doing this I think I, I um, got a lot more respect for the religious process so I certainly um, it, it was I, I did have a set of stereotypes about evangelicals and I had a sense of you know um, the kinds of stereotypes that you'd expect somebody in the academy to have. Um, and I was impressed by how smart and sophisticated many of the people I met were, how complicated their beliefs were. Also, I think that, um, so that was important. I felt that it was important. And I just at this point, I'd been teaching classes and I'd been so impressed by the ravine between different belief perspectives. I just thought that that was unfortunate. And I actually really think that it would be helpful for our country if we were able to reach more across these intellectual divides, spiritual divides, whatever. Um, I mean, I was practicing the, these prayers, and I, um, I wouldn't call myself a, a Christian, certainly not a traditional Christian, but I felt that I had um, something of a, acquired something of a sense of God. Um, now, what do I mean that, by that? I don't really know. But a sense, I was able to hang on to more the sense of joy in the world that I know. Um, I was able to hang on to more a sense of the, um, of an interaction with something beyond <coughs> myself. Um, a sense that that was a good and soothing experience. Um, I developed developed a ton of respect for the um, comforting potential of a relationship with God, and I was uh, envious of the fact that I would see the people I knew in church best be able to weather a bump with you know the kind of bumps we all have in life um, with more ease because. Uh, they sort of held close to them a sense of a being who loved them, told them that this was was going to be okay. It was just a bump, um, and I I began to acquire a little bit more of that skill in myself. And um, you know, some some people would would talk about this as seeing yourself from God's perspective. So seeing yourself not from the inside out. You know, I'm terrified about this. This has been a disaster. What a catastrophe this particular thing has been. But more, gee, this is somebody doing her job. That was certainly unexpected, wasn't it? It's, but it's one of the, you know, it's that, that the kind of the voice that, so if you've been really lucky, your mom and your dad served that role for you when you were young. 
and some of us retain that inner capacity as we age, um, I thought that um, these prayer practices gave that back to people to some extent. And, um, and I was able to do a little bit of that myself. You know, I think it's just so important to emphasize the strength and the importance of, of the of the imagination, and that, mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that I really took away from this book was that the how not just how important the imagination is, but how flexible it is, and that it's it's not just a frivolous thing. That you know, you, when you say something's imaginary, you think, well, it's it's unimportant. But mm -hmm. imagination is a very it's a key part of our intellect. It's a key part of our experience in the world. It's and it's definitely a double-edged tool. I mean, the, so the, the the fearful things you imagine are as much a product of your imagination as the joyful, comforting things that you imagine. Um, and what you what I think I saw in the church was this massive effort to restructure and reorient the imagination towards this benevolent being. Um, who you experience as having only your best interests at heart. Um, you know, and it's really pretty striking that, that this, this use of the imagination to reach God is something that the church fathers knew well. Um, it's certainly the do a, a dominant way of thinking about God in the Christian church um, for many, many centuries. Well, it strikes me as uh, the way you describe the prayers strikes me as a very scientific approach to accomplishing what they want to accomplish. I mean, it's a reasonable way to say, okay, we, this is what we want to do, and this is how we're going to do it, and there's going to be kind of a structure to it. Well, you sort of expect that. I mean, given that, again, this is why it's sort of puzzled to me that, that prayer has, has not been you know, studied so much within the academy, or the, you know, the prayer efficacy for the prayer has not been studied so much in the academy because, you know, three out of five Americans pray every day. We know that prayer is one of the most common religious practices. That has got to be doing something good for people. I mean, humans don't do, I mean, you could, I suppose you could imagine certain practices that are, you know, not good for people that, that they well that they do, but it it just seems like such a powerful part of spiritual practice across the centuries and across religious traditions. Um, it's got to be uh, humans have gotten to come to have got to realize this technique because it was doing something powerful for them. Now, as a, a cultural anthropologist, um, talk about just putting a little bit about putting this book together so that as you are putting this book together, you realize that it's going to be perceived in certain ways. You've got to construct it in certain ways. You know, the, the process of composing this, it must have been very difficult. Well, um, E.B. White once said that if you, um, if you were, could any, if you were a writer and you could do anything other than write, you would, because writing is just so darn hard. Um, Susan Sontag said that she usually did 17 drafts of, of anything that she wrote. Um, I wouldn't, you know, it, I'm not reaching for those stars, but I, I would say that it's, um, you know, writing is tough. 
and you know what you're trying to do is say something as simply as you can and as clearly as you can but you're trying to tell a story because that's how humans learn so you're trying to use the experience of the people you know to tell that story you're um you know what's what's really so striking when you're when you're writing this is how pathetically much you leave out. I mean, it's just um, horrifying to come back. You talk to somebody for an hour and a half, and you come back and you write it up. You have a page and a half of notes, two pages or five pages. I mean, it just feels so woefully inadequate. Um, and so when you when I write, I mean, there are two kinds of writers. There are the people who spend a long, at least my editor told me there were two kinds of writers, so I, I believe her. Um, there, there are people who think and think and think, and then they have the voice of what they're going to say clear in their head, and they sit down, they write it, and that's the way it comes out. They, well, they, they, you could call it a muse, but they're just kind of, they, they get set in their head and they do it. And then there are people like me who, you know, I write a draft, and then I throw out almost every word. And then, so it's like a 150-page draft, and I ditch it. And then I write another draft, and then I shuffle it around, and I revise it. And I write it at 50 pages, and then it goes down to 20 pages. And then I realize I left something out, and so it goes in. Um, it's, uh, so it's, and mostly when I'm cutting out, I'm trying to cut out the purple. It's, uh, it's, um, Abraham Verghese talks about killing the, 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 the babies. Oh, yes. Um, so. It's, you know, or killing the lovelies. I can't quite, you know, the things, you, you, the phrases that you like, that you really like, are usually phrases that you should cut. It's, uh, and the darlings, that's it. It's, um, that's right. It, it's, um, so it's, the, it takes time. You know, as you can, then you, and it's a kind of an, ana, it, I tell stories, but it's an analytic book, so I'm wanting the argument to really be the plot, but then there are these individual stories that are subplots, and, you know, so I have Sarah in, she carries this story because she's really the person who changes the most, and we use her to figure out these different, what the church is teaching people and how she has changed, and she was just high absorption, and she heard all kinds of things. She was really interesting. Um, and then, you know, and so you try and and you give it to your, your patient friends and they roll their eyes and then you revise, revise it again. It's a long process. Well, the final result is stunning. Uh, Tanya, I think we ha might have a, a couple questions here. Any questions from the audience? Okay, uh, that counts as a couple. <laughs> Terry. Your book is wonderful. I'm going to buy it. I've already marked it up. And I compliment <laughs> you on it. But do you, I'm disappointed you haven't addressed the politics trend and the manipulation to serve the sinister demands of people like Santorum. Mm -hmm. So that was deliberate. Um, I do share some of my views. And in, in this Monday's New York Times, I have an op-ed on politics and what the Democrats could learn from evangelicals, evangelicals if they wanted to reach them. But I wanted to draw people's attention to the way people knew God, not to the politics. Newer fantasized about God. 
No, I, I, I you know, I, I think that a, I know a lot of people who believe a lot of things I don't believe. That would include a lot of my colleagues. And I don't think that, you know, I think a lot of them have sensible things to say, even though I might disagree with them. I wanted to know about the experience of knowing God, and I really take seriously the fact that I don't think I can sign off as an anthropologist on whether God exists or not. I just don't. No, I really, I actually think that's true. Uh, we have a gentleman, uh, you back there, yeah. You know, you know, sir, I can appreciate the rational and scientific posi position that you articulate and know so well, so much of which I share myself, but I will tell you I've undisputably heard the word of God and I've heard him speak to me in a way that I've found so palpable, clear, strong, and definite it made a, it confirmed my belief. It gave me faith and made me realize that here is an experience that I can't reconcile nor explain. Okay, so let me make a comment on that. I think that if Democrats don't understand what that faith experience is like and how, it how that process shapes the lives of evangelicals, they will not understand their politics and they will not be able to reach them. And I think that there's some ways in which Democrats aren't going to be able to reach certain evangelicals no matter what they say. But it, I don't think it is helpful to treat whatever you might think of Rick Santorum's politics. It is certainly not helpful to treat him and the people who follow him as nuts if you want some of them to vote for you. Okay, let's hear from a I'm sort of back young on lady. the hippie Christian concept, which I never heard before. And um, so what was the difference between hippie Christians and all the other hippies? I mean, what really made the They were Christians. Yeah, but how, as hippies, did that really... Did that mean that, like, they didn't smoke marijuana? No. The hilarious thing. Sex, or what, I mean, what were the differences between the Christian hippies and the other hippies? They added God. So, well, at least in the beginning, there, there is this wonderful documentary called Lonnie Frisbee, which it really is about sort of San Francisco and Los Angeles. And it it's quite clear that when Lonnie kind of had the kind of Adolescence you had in the 60s, or people were beginning to have in the 60s. He did a, dropped a lot of LSD, and at one point, and it's not entirely clear how this happened, he added God to LSD. And there, this documentary is amazing because it's, you know, that all of his friends would hike up into Tequitz Falls in Los Angeles, and they'd drop acid and find God. That's what happened. And then he would, you know, and he would then baptize people in the, the ocean. And when it is true that there were a series of Pentecostal and Baptist pastors who came into Haight-Ashbury where some people were having a terrible time, and you remember the Summer of Love, which was so wonderful, but you know, all the city services yeah, failed yeah, yeah, yeah. because they were so overcrowded and they ran out of food and they ran, I mean, there was kind of a nightmare for some people. And the pastors would begin to gather up some of those people um, you know, thousands of people went through those services during those first two years. Lonnie ended up in um, something called the House of Acts, the big house up in, up in Marin someplace. And uh, they eventually tr weaned him off the acid. He introduced, and people like him introduced tongues. 
Now, this is what, I mean, this is the piece I don't fully understand. The hippie Christians, you know, as they let go of LSD, they introduced speaking in tongues. You know, this, the Holy Spirit. Well, this, uh, this language-like sound that is not technically a language, but you're using the phoneme, you know, it's thought to be a spiritual language of God. And it makes people often feel fantastic when they speak in tongues. And the hippies thought this was marvelous. And so speaking in tongues swept through the evangelical movement. Um, I think they also brought into that movement a sense of political purpose. Um, as we've heard, it went kind of, it shifted its political direction fairly rapidly. But that kind of political activism, the sense that, you know, you're going to make a difference in the world, I think that that's the hippies. Okay, right, you. Yes, hi. I, I'm really struck by how, what a parallel experience you would, you describe that the training for, for uh, this is an actor training. Yeah. The willful s suspension of disbelief, right. paying attention to the sensual uh, cues and the actual, um, the actual physical, emotional, mental change that some actors do That's so well that they get Oscars and um, <laughs> for it instead of being called, uh, you know, this is preposterous. Plus the right. fact they've done some scientific studies about the levels of cortisol, this, you know, the actual chemical changes. I wonder if you could um, speak to that a little bit. I have less sense of, I mean, so what I know about the experience of prayer as an anthropologist, I'm always not doing cortisol levels, and it's, uh, anyway, it is, uh, there's some disagreement about how, how reliable that those are. It is, it is pretty clear that the more you affirm, so this is the kind of the, the stuff I did. You know, you give people a set of questionnaires, the more somebody affirms the statement, I feel God lo God's love for me directly, the less lonely they are and the less stressed they are. So it's, uh, it is pretty clear, and I'm not the only person to have found that, that the amount that you pray, at least if you experience God as loving. So there's been another study that found that if uh, the more you pray, if God is critical, as you, if you experience God as critical, the more likely you are to have mental illness. But the more you pray, if you experience God as loving, the less likely you are to, ha to meet criteria for a di diagnosis of mental illness. So again, I mean, I think that the, these are human capacities to, um, you know, and basically they're capacities that for change, the imagination changes you. It makes, uh, I mean, religion is basically the commitment that the world that you see before you is a better and more gracious world than the world that you actually see. So it demands that you do, you work with your imagination to understand that world differently. And that I think that's, a great, you know, that's a great, that's a good call. I like that. I think it's true. Yeah. I think it's true. I mean, that's the, the you know, the big challenge of um, certainly the Christian experience is to experience what you're, you experiencing God as real and experiencing God as good. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you have take some work to do that and but it's a very simple observation okay uh, way at the back I'll go last uh, okay well uh, you mentioned having, having found 
uh, a, a method in action, a method of, of mental conditioning uh, in this church that you study, or these churches that you study. I'm curious whether whether you identified any individuals, any concrete individuals in times who were the sources of that method. And is it associated with any one particular teaching or any group's teaching? Well, I think that Again, there's something about prayer that, that it partakes in general of shifting from the everyday to what must be imagined. In some sense, that's true. That I think that's part of the spiritual experience because it's just part of what the spiritual experience is. In the Christian, so in the Christian tradition, um, the word cataphatic is typically associated with a anonymous philosopher who called himself the, uh, he's called the pseudo-Dionysus, Dionysus the Areopagite, um, who's a fifth century uh, writer who um, thought that using the imagination was easier than doing, uh, than reaching God without, um, without being cluttered by the human imagination. So initially this was seen as a sort of stepping stone to a more, a higher way of praying. And that higher way of praying is sometimes associated with the Desert Fathers. Um, but in fact, it was made concrete by the cloud of unknowing, which um, is an, an another, sort of describes what, what you might think of as Zen meditation. And I think this is a 14th century English text, it anonymous English text. And, it, and Cloud of Unknowing says, if you want to reach God, beat against a, a dark cloud of unknowing with darts of love. Any thought that comes into your mind, even thinking about God, that's going to distract you from the task. That's really hard. Mary Carruthers writes about the way that the this sort of practice of replacing the imagination um, the human imagination with scriptural imagination was um, a central way of thinking during the um, Middle Ages. Um, Michelle Carnes has also written about that. Um, uh, it was, excuse, excuse me? Yes, so they're scholars who summarize some of this work. You could claim that Augustine is inviting people to do this. You could claim that Anselm is inviting people to do this. You could claim that um, Jakob Burma is invited, inviting people to experience their imaginations like this. Uh, Boethius, I think. Um, Rachel Fulton is... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so in the vineyard, so the person that I would... Um, pin as being the most explicit description of this style in a contemporary world would be Richard Foster, Celebration of Disciplines. Um, when the church, naturally supernatural is, um, I think that is, is George, uh, I think Gary Best's book that's often taken as a teaching text for vineyard prayer. So Richard Foster is not technically in the vineyard, but he's one of the experiential Christians who's read uh, Christianity Today says that this book is like the 10 best Christian books of the century. Um, well, Wimber didn't describe praying quite in this way. Um, he was much more focused on describing 
proving that the supernatural was real. And so Power Evangelism is uh, his best-known book, and it goes on and on about, you know, this is really real, this is the way to think about it, you know, it's easier in Africa, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. Um, but Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, um, I think that Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life invites you into this experience. It tells you to experience God as your best friend. He warns you against not going, not doing Christianity for experiential, for the pure experience, but it's a pretty clear description. Um, and then there are a variety of other texts that in, you know, uh, the sacred romance, uh, the, um, God whispers. There's a whole experience in God. There's a whole, you know, shelf full of books that invite you to experience God by using your imagination. Um, and again, C.S. Lewis would, would fall into that category. I would say that C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and, and J.K. Rowling are emerging as the Christian sort of children's book novelists of this century that really speak to people in a different language about how to experience God. And I'll say, too, that your book itself it has a great, superb uh, survey of this literature, and that's one of the yeah. things I really enjoyed about reading your book was that it pointed the way to a lot of other reading. Would so, you be interested? Yeah, and I also have sort of a how-to guide to construct prayer, borrowed from Ignatius. Very back blue shirt. Josh, hi. Yeah. Part one is Yeah. Like, it was that because you're talking about it as a good experience, and yet at least I'm also an anthropologist who studies this stuff, and a lot of the people I talk to have a good experience, but also this sort of horrible thing that's happening yeah. to other people. And <coughs> yeah, I mean, and in this book, the, the, the part of the vineyard practice that um, I describe as most dangerous is this business of traffic with demons. It's, um, and again, a, a pastor, many pastors clearly have a very different view. And I think one of the challenges of taking the gospels very seriously um, is that it's very hard to do that without taking demons seriously because half of what Jesus does is to throw out demons, or at least he spends a lot of time getting rid of demons. So if you're going to take the text pretty seriously, um, then it's hard not to take demons seriously. At the same, and it, it is certainly true that just as with the experience of prayer, I found that pe people who were kind of high absorption were more likely to take demons seriously and get very caught up with with demons. But what I saw was, I mean, that the only folks who um, said things like, "I worry, I worry that I'm going crazy." were people who were really caught up with demons. And they were acting in very noble ways from the perspective of the church. They were, you know, they'd gone to, you know, youths on a mission, YWAM, or youths with a, you know, youths with a mission. And they, they'd learned all about spiritual warfare and they'd learned that we were in a battle um, with darkness. And, you know, I got to, and there's something really theologically rich there if you're going to take the good supernatural is seriously. It's hard 
Um, and if God is really going to be treated as unconditionally loving, it's hard to do much with that unless theologically you have a counterweight. So I, I understand that. But um, the, the, these were women that I knew who, who would get very involved with the idea of spiritual warfare, and they'd walk into restaurants, and they'd sniff the evil, and then they'd have to pray, and then they'd walk the streets, and they'd sniff the evil, and they'd have to pray, and, they, and then they started feeling burdened by uh, Iraq and the, you know, the, the, the terrible things that were happening to our, sh- our, shoulder, our soldiers and the, and the crime in the cities, and the burden of being 23 and walking around and praying against, against all that is really a pretty significant burden. And also it means that you start living in a world in which if you're, say, going to the University of Chicago, people think you're kind of crazy, or at least you think that it's kind of weird to live in that world. And so those were, so that's what I saw. I saw that the um, demons made sense. I saw that people had real experiences of demons. I saw that, which were sort of physiological in nature. I saw that uh, people who really loved praying were more likely to pray vigorously against demons. But I also saw that the demons, um, this involvement with demons was kind of tough for people. It was a little less tough for pastors, in my experience. Um, because pastors were kind of expected to be confident and comfortable. Pastors felt like they had more authority. Um, I, I, I could say more, but. Okay, we got time for a couple more questions. Let's what, I was raised by some incredible, I had grandparents that were pretty incredible. My grandfather was a doctor. My grandmother could have been a Christian scientist, except she was married to a doctor and had been through some horrible accidents and some terrible things that happened to her, so she needed medical care. Yeah. But her her take always was, I remember at four, having that struggling with something, and she'd say, now go and sit and wait for the still quiet voice. Mm-hmm. How is that different than talking to God? Is that is that is that a different concept, or is it is it it's something else? And and she you know she would say the things are as they are that there's a blessing there. Wait, right. wait for the still quiet voice and see see what you what you discover. And so that was that was that was my childhood was this conversation trying to figure out sometimes negotiating with God mm-hmm. and, and and you know which is kids like to do. Right. And the other part of it was was sitting and waiting to see what the blessing was. I think that's very similar. So again, everyone has their own pattern and their own, they become comfortable with a certain way of recognizing God and responding to God. They quote that passage from Kings, I think, a lot. Um, they, uh, what, what you're looking for is something that happens interiorly that feels like it is not you but different, feels like it's calming, feels like it's giving you advice. Um, and I would say at the vineyard that that is, it's a little bit more elaborated. So people are working a little harder to um, have that experience on a frequent basis rather than just, you know, Sunday morning or, you know, when in extremis. Or when you're flunking math. I mean, they're really trying to, and that's what makes it seem sometimes silly to other people because, I mean, you know, one of my favorite um ethnographic tidbits of, is somebody who was sort of giggling about the fact that God would talk to her about which shampoo to buy. 
And I mean, she did, wasn't taking that too seriously, but she was, but clearly people were practicing, you know, asking God about what shirt they should wear, you know, what shampoo to buy, what these silly little things. And I saw that as practicing so that they could talk to God with the big things, but so that there's a sense of trying to hone that, that awareness. So you know, pretty much anyone can, you know, has some representation of what the still small voice is, and they really practice. So what I saw at the vineyard was actually quite similar to that, and I can see why this drives observers bananas. So you pray to God, God is always loving, God at the vineyard, people are very clear, God will deliver to you know what you pray for, God will give you anything that you want, will he give you a scorpion when you ask for an egg? Um, God will deliver. And then when God doesn't deliver, which happens pretty commonly if you're praying for very specific things, you know, and particularly if it's a big thing, um, it's like God wants to be there by your side when you're when you're in pain. So let me just say, um, make one comment to, to why why it's worth not treating that as ridiculous. And it's a very so you'll you'd see this Philip Yancey would be the person who says this most clearly. God does not want you to ask why. God wants to stand by your side as you look out at the wreckage that is your life. Um, the the, um, the reason I take that seriously is that I think that when something really lousy happens, it I find it more soothing for somebody to say, I'm sorry that sucks, and I'm sorry that it happened to you, rather than trying to explain it. And so I was impressed by the fact that um, you know when terrible things happen to people, when good people died young, when kids died, um, at least at the, in these settings where I saw these events take place, um, people did not reach out for demons. They did not say that the, you know, Satan did it. They did not give it an explanation. They just said, I don't know. And that they often went numb in their relationship with God. Um, but they... And it was pretty seemed pretty clear to me that it if you if they could get God to stand by their side, they were better off than if they didn't. I mean, but because if they didn't, then they'd lost their faith along with losing this having going through this terrible experience. You know, and I, I when I was in my middle thirties, I had two friends, um, each of whom had a young child and a son in terrible trouble. Uh, and one of the sons made it and one of the sons did not. And one of them during this period, uh, and this for me this was a very formative experience, one of them said relatively, a woman with some sense of faith, um, complicated with some sense of faith, said, I can't think about this in terms, for God, in terms of God because, you know, if this is, I can't make sense of why a God would do this to me. And the other woman said, I cannot make it through this without God. I don't know why it happened, but I just can't do it without God. Those are two, you know, smart, I was in college with both of them, smart, sensible people, same politics, um, same emotional struggles. And, but they, they used God in very different ways. I mean, these are very private issues. Well, Ladies and gentlemen. We've had the privilege and the pleasure of having Tanya Lerman speak with us. Thank you for joining us, Tanya. Thank you very much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.